Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Reformed Podmatics. I am Pastor Mark. And I'm Pastor Zach. And we thank you for joining us for this conversation. Hopefully it's uh, one that is going to be helpful to you. I'm sure it will be stimulating in uh, various ways because we're going to be talking today about women's roles in the church, women's ordination, uh, particularly thinking about women's ordination in roles of leadership, like being a pastor or an elder or a deacon. And so um, we're going to be talking about maybe start start with some big terms and uh, that will help the conversation flow a little bit smoother through the <laughs> yeah. rest of uh, the rest of our talk and and so the the big word that um, or the two big words that we'll really be using a lot in this conversation are complementarianism and egalitarianism and so there has been a debate that has mm-hmm. really revved up since the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. about this uh, this matter of women's ordination and so, Complementarians um, believe that men and women are created equal but have complementary roles um, in particularly the home and the church. It has nothing to do with co- paying a compliment to one another. <laughs> no, that is correct. And so hopefully complementarians are complementary of uh, certain good things that are happening in the church, but think yeah. more as um, complement uh, that things that complement one another or people that complement one another in that they work synergistically together. They get along Mm -hmm. and they work side by side with one another. Um, A person who complements another person in their job. uh, Right. That's so a type a person may complement a more creative thinker and a creative thinking person may complement a type a sort of straightforward sort of thinker. Right. Or the entrepreneur complements the, organizer, right? Yeah. That, that sort of a thing. So right. um, the complementarian position regarding women's ordination is that the roles of particularly pastor and elder and most often deacon are reserved for men. And so this is countered by the egalitarian position, um, which would say that, of course, men and women are equal and all of the offices of the church are should be open to, to women. So um, the egalitarian person would be in favor of women preachers, women elders in the church, um, really women in any role that, um, that one would need to fill for the functioning of the church. Yeah, and one of the interesting things to say at the beginning of this episode is that this is a, a debate that is had by Christians who are very much on the same page on other issues, mm. uh, which is always interesting to, to get into. But there's a lot of otherwise conservative Christians that are egalitarians uh, and very biblical and who hold, like we do, to, let's say, the doctrines of grace, who have a very similar picture of soteriology or even of how uh, 
the church is supposed to be organized in, in its polity with pastors and mm-hmm. elders and deacons uh, and so on. So there's a lot of agreement, but then on this issue, some some of the the wheels fall off in terms of agreement. And so it, it's interesting for this conversation to take place. This is also a very Protestant conversation. Mm, yeah. uh, I'm always mindful of that when I'm talking about this with others because really for the Orthodox and the Roman Catholic churches, this isn't really a huge conversation. That's not to say it's not being brought up or discussed, but it is pretty much a Protestant-only conversation. Uh, yeah, I don't really foresee a female pope during our lifetime. Yeah, no, I, I don't either. Um and so, and, and particularly also in our own denomination, in the Christian Reformed Church of North America, this is very much a live issue. Yeah. Uh, it seems to me, what I've been told as I've been, been here now for four years, is that we are, a, we are open to women's ordination, but it really depends on uh, the local churches. And so, the Christian Reformed Church. Is, right, yeah. yeah. That, that's at least what, what I know. So it depends on the church you're going to. Mm-hmm. Um, but it at least is allowed in the CRC to be egalitarian and to have female pastors, and there are plenty of them in our denomination. Yeah. Um, and so, really, it's le- it's an issue that's left up to each individual church to decide for themselves whether their local church will have women elders or pastors or deacons. Uh, and so, there's still much conversation to be done. Uh, still much discussing to be to be done. Yeah, there's a lot of speculation on how much of the Christian Reformed Church is complementarian and how much of it is egalitarian. It's definitely a very live issue, I guess. Yeah. Um, that's why I, I, I really hesitate to, to even make much of a, a strong guess on how what percentage, mm-hmm. but um, definitely the prevailing practice in the CRC remains... Past, for pastors, that that a pastor would be a man of a church, hmm. um, even in many churches that have women elders. Yeah, yeah. There, you, there's not a lot of controversy when a woman is appointed as a pastor. Um, but yeah, there would be locally in a lot of different contexts, but um, denominationally, no. There there would be no yeah. um, eyebrows raised when when that would happen. And and in fact, I would say, having attended Calvin Theological Seminary, the denominational hmm. seminary egalitarianism is very much assumed and encouraged at Calvin Seminary. the kind of effect that that might have going forward in the decades to come. Yeah, yeah. You could, could, it's it's anybody's guess, but we could all probably get a a sense (laughs) of how things may continue to go. Um, Yeah, I'd say something that is happening a lot right now in the CRC is ministers who were trained at Calvin Seminary, um, and I don't know if they would have adopted an egalitarian view there or would have come to the seminary with sure. it. Um, would This is happening a lot. I, I've, I know of several cases where mm-hmm. a pastor who is e- in, of an egalitarian persuasion, a man, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, will go to a complementarian church and in seven or eight years' time, not it's not like he's like a covert operator or something, but it's going to convince people in that church to adopt the more egalitarian position. And I think that's happening very broadly over the CRC quite a bit right now. There's already a sort of latent move amongst a lot of lay people, not just in the CRC, but in any Christian church in America, where there's a compelling pull Mm -hmm. uh, toward egalitarianism. Uh, And so that's something to be considered too, is that most 
everyday, average, ordinary sorts of Christians, this isn't to demean them at all. It's just, I think, recognizing a trend can at least feel the weight of the egalitarian argument. Yeah. Um, And not just any egalitarian argument, but almost towards the sort of interchangeability of men and women. Mm. Because that's just part of the world in which we live today. And I don't think all egalitarians want to go full on and say that men and women are the the exact same. Sure. The only difference is their biological difference. Most egalitarians I know don't want to go that far. Yeah. But I think we live in a world today where the messaging is so clear and loud that men and women basically are the same thing. Well, and they they go to work in hospitals and offices and uh, schools, and they see women in leadership in those Mm -hmm. places, and so that definite they see very capable women doing a great job in um, in those contexts, and so it's natural to transfer that Mm -hmm. that experience into what what should be normative for the church. Yeah, for a lot of women can be cops if. Yeah. If women can be doctors, if can be on the front be, lines of a battle they can or be something. CEOs, yeah. they can be in battle. Yeah. Why can't they be a pastor? Sure. And that's the world in which we live, and that makes this whole discussion very fraught, very, <laughs> very difficult. Yeah. Um, in in that sense, in that sort of emotional sense, and along with that, there is a lot of baggage that's brought into this conversation, because let's be real, the uh, fundamentalist evangelicals have not always been so great in their treatment of women. Yeah. And so a lot of a lot of evil things happen under the banner of complementarianism, uh which is which is unfortunate, but I think this is one of the things that we we saw and maybe we can preview this, but we <laughs> we saw in the book Jesus and John Wayne uh by Kristen Cobes Dumay um which you know, we had a lot of Agreements and disagreements with mm-hmm. the book, uh, but what yeah, there the, could be a review coming of it yeah, on our podcast. Yeah. Maybe I think we might need to do that. Yeah, um, eventually. But uh, <laughs> but there there was some things that she very clearly points out that are pretty much impossible to argue with. I don't want to argue with. That, yeah, that there have been a lot of atrocities that have been committed in the name of complementarianism. Yeah, I don't agree that everything she points out is is an atrocity or is an abuse. But uh, I I think it's quite clear that. It's often complementarian churches uh, can perpetuate some pretty unhealthy yeah uh, toxic yeah approaches towards men and women and their relationships with one another yeah hmm. somebody who's been listening to this podcast I don't know if you're very astute you could probably pick up on that already but you might be a little bit surprised already by how we as complementarians have talked about the issue um, because in my listening and in my interactions with complementarians, often it's a sort of a no holds barred, defended at all cost. Yeah. How, never give any ground, never admit to any. Like, so somebody in a complementarian position would be very unlikely to read Jesus and John Wayne, which we've done, and see any good in it, for example, which, right. which we really did try to do. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, for those who haven't read this book, it's about, it's basically an expose of. Mm. Um, modern evangelicalism uh, showing that uh, hyper-masculinization, militarization, mm-hmm. um, aggressive, uh, really not very Christian ethics have uh, yeah. contributed to 
the rise of the popularity of Donald Trump and um, and how Donald Trump is sort of a symptom of, of a long-standing tradition yeah. of evangelicals being very duped into following yeah. morally suspect leaders. Yeah, so the whole argument is basically an explanation of how Donald Trump was not something that should have surprised yeah. people, but that yeah. should have been uh, perceivable and should have been understood by people who had known evangelical history. So the title of the book is really telling as well, Jesus and John Wayne. Basically, she makes the case that over the course, particularly of the 20th century, evangelicals began to uh, mm-hmm. make Jesus into a sort of John Wayne figure, and therefore they wanted to they wanted men to act and live as though they were John Wayne. And so you yeah. see a sort of idolization of the figure of John Wayne in all the different Western movies where he's tough and he's saving women and yeah. from he's, minorities. He's, yeah, from from yeah. minorities, he's white, he's independent, he's sort of the the ruggedly independent type and so yeah. That's that's basically what a lot of evangelicals began to equate with true biblical masculinity even though John Wayne wasn't a Christian and <laughs> uh, wasn't exactly a, a good a good uh, reflection of Christ in so many ways and so yeah. I, I think that 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 main thesis is not not entirely incorrect. I, yeah. I think that there's a lot of truth to that. To macho Christianity. Right, yeah. yeah. And that's basically what the book confronts is macho complementarian theology. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so we have to then get into complementarianism and egalitarianism. And we, if, we, if we're going to defend complementarianism, we, we want to do so in a way that I think we, we're both firm on what Scripture teaches. We want to look at what Scripture has but we also i think want to add the necessary nuance that if we're going to be following scripture's teaching we have to add all of what scripture says we can't just look at certain passages that uh, can be seen as sort of slam dunk passages we have to bring in all of it uh, and and mm-hmm. look at the view of or look at the the approach that scripture has yeah. toward women because it is not the approach of the John Wayne evangelical types. Yeah. Uh, that's where they go so drastically and dangerously wrong. And so I think when hold, we hold the scripture, we hold every part of it, mm-hmm. uh, we actually come out in a very, very healthy place. And so that is the goal of this of this podcast is to, to see particularly what scripture says. And along the way, Mark and I will share bits of our story mm-hmm. and how we both came to this position I don't think either of us grew up in complementarian churches. Yeah, mine was, settings. but never it would never would have been brought up in a sermon. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. I I came to a complementarian position on my own while at a egalitarian church, and so, um, and and even that, like my upbringing, and probably yours to some extent too, it was an assumed complementarianism, right? W- wouldn't you say that? Like it, it was just sort of like. Um, in the 80s and 90s, even still, men are pa- pastors mm-hmm. are going to be a man, and elder is going to be a man, and yeah, and, and so that, uh, so that's just how I felt growing up. Like I was never given a complementarian theology; yeah. it was just the de facto status of how churches work. Yeah. So as a young child, I went to a Baptist church, and that's that's probably how that was. I don't think that that would that church even today would be egalitarian. Mm-hmm. It might. I don't know where the converge denomination 
uh, stands on that, on the issue. Um, but then I switched, as I've said before in podcasts before, uh, to a United, formerly United Methodist Church that was non-denominational, but for all intents and purposes, still Methodist. And so it was an egalitarian, and Pastor Edazaki was there, and he is still a very, very close friend and mentor to me, and he is still a very strong egalitarian. And mm-hmm. so, uh, and that it was there that I came to the position that I came to. So, mm, interesting to talk about positions, we have to get into what the scripture says. And yeah. so, I've categorized this in my mind as sort of passages that give clear evidence. Uh, of of I think the complementarian position people might see these as clobber passages but they have to be yeah they have understood to be dealt and dealt with in some <laughs> capacity whether you want to toss them aside or not we have to look into them then I think there's the relevant passages that don't explicitly talk about women's roles in terms of the church and ordination but uh, give us a broader perspective on the interrelationship uh, of men and women. Yeah. And then I think that there's passages, finally, that add balance, that actually, in many ways, give a very high priority to uh, to women and to what women can and should be doing uh, in the church and in the world uh, as well. And so, Yeah, it's a lot like the conversation on homosexuality where there are the precise passages. Correct. And then there are many other passages throughout the rest of Scripture that deal with marriage right. or like in this case the relationship between men and women um there are really a plethora of those texts yeah and then um yeah there's going to be a handful also mm-hmm. that are require explanation from from our position which yeah. is complementarian position so. yeah so we can start of course with perhaps the clearest of all which is first timothy 2 this is seen as a it's one of those passages that some some sense as a clobber passage, but Paul says, starting in verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And then he says this, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And so this is quite clear. Paul is saying that she does not, a woman does not have exercise or the authority to exercise over a man. This is not something that she should be doing. Um, And so she is to remain quiet in the church setting. Um, Now, and he continues in that too. Yeah. Into chapter three. He goes straight into chapter three where he begins to give qualifications to elders and deacons and what what these very particular uh, qualifications are for these men uh, who are going to be fulfilling these roles. And so uh, I won't read all of first Timothy three, but we can, one of the things to note here is that the assumption made in these qualifications is that these roles of elder and deacon will both be men they were they're going to be husbands of one wife that's true for both now interestingly and we can get into this maybe in the nuance section but i think that there could be an argument for women being deacons and so if if that passage in first timothy 3 allows for or assumes that it's going to be a man 
But if there's another passage of scripture mm-hmm. that says that a deacon could be a woman, why not allow for the yep. First Timothy 3, 1 and following where he's, Paul's talking about the qualifications for an elder? Why can't we let a woman be an elder? Well, I think that the thing about an elder that differentiates the elder from a deacon is exactly the exercising of authority, mm-hmm. which in verse 12 of chapter 2, just before chapter 3, uh, Paul very clearly says, I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man. And so that would, for me, be a pretty closed case. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then the devil's advocate or the egalitarian would say, well, maybe that's for this church. Like Paul right. is giving a precise prescription for this congregation that I think it's in Ephesus, right, that Timothy would have been serving in at the time. Timothy served a few different churches, but um, mm-hmm. uh, but they would say, well, maybe that's this congregation, yeah. and the women were being unruly, and mm-hmm. so in order to correct that issue, it was just going to be men maybe for a time or something like that. Yeah, so the argument often is, as you're saying... That's the local... So Timothy is working in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is known as having the temples of Artemis, which yeah. would have women uh, sort of priestesses running those temples, and so... There's some that suspect, even though I don't think there's a lot of data on this, suspect that there's some sort of syncretistic Christian-y cult that is sort of mixed in with with this uh, sort of Artemis temple worship sort of stuff, and that these women leaders are going around preaching a false gospel. And so Paul is saying, I do not permit a woman to teach because in the context that Timothy's in here in Ephesus, that's that's what could possibly be going on but the problem with this and and i've heard this argument quite a bit but the problem with this is verse 13 here in chapter 2 where timothy or paul tells timothy for adam was formed Mm -hmm. first then eve and adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor now this is interesting yeah this is a huge text for all of church history and understanding women's roles however we take it it's interesting to me that paul does not say for there are women false teacher women (laughs) going around ephesus preaching a false gospel for paul he grounds it not in the cultural context of ephesus but in the context of creation Mm -hmm. uh, pre-fall creation even he sees an order here of adam being formed first and then eve and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now that has also has a, that has a very interesting history in in church or in the interpretation yeah. of church history, Augustine, where a lot of people yeah. have believed that women are just more gullible. Um, I'm not sure that that's what Paul is saying here, um, but I do think that however we take this. And there's whole books that, that are written on this. Oh, yeah. I have a book called Women in the Church. It's edited by Andreas Kostenberger and I think Tom Schreiner. And it's dealing with it's a whole book. It's like 300 pages just on these verses. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot that can be said. But for me, it's pretty clear that the grounding here is in some sort of order that God has created men and women to exist in. And so that's a big one for for me. Yeah, and then another response to the local argument, this idea that, well, that's for Timothy and his congregation, but not for all congregations, 
is undone pretty quickly by First Corinthians fourteen thirty three hmm. and thirty four, which uh, starts by saying, "Well, halfway through verse thirty three, you'd find, mm-hmm. as in all congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says." If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. And so um, Paul is saying there, um, well, first of all, we need to recognize the countercultural and jarring nature of that in our modern day culture. Oh, yeah. um, not because Paul's wrong, but because uh, you know there would be a lot of people listening, I would guess, of an egalitarian persuasion who would read those words and immediately not like them and almost resent that they're in the Bible. Yeah. However, um, I think the goal is to be shaped by Scripture um, more so than stand in judgment of it. And so mm-hmm. we got to figure out what this says. And it seems pretty clear that what it's saying is in all congregations, um, mm-hmm. women should have a spirit of trust of their leaders, um, trust of their pastors and elders, the authorities, spiritual authorities that are over them, um, and he's particularly dealing in this chapter with worship. Uh, the Corinthian church was known for being a kind of an unruly congregation, hmm. even during worship services. And so um, Paul is saying yeah. um, it, worship in particular is a time for, for submission, not just to God, but to uh, local spiritual authorities, mm-hmm. um, and and submission that's a big word it's a word that comes with a lot of emotional baggage but um i i think less of being a doormat and more of trusting um so that's the nature of biblical submission just as in ephesians 5 the wife is called to submit to her husband um in the church the the woman and men are all called to submit to the right. the spiritual authority that's ordained to lead them. There's some sort of order. That's what this whole passage in First Corinthians 14 is getting yeah. at. Is that first the, the church in Corinthians is bananas, pretty much. Yeah, that's that's the the inference <laughs> I get. Things are going crazy there. Yeah, they God are, is not a God of chaos, but of order. Right, is, and so yeah, people there. are speaking in tongues out of turn, giving prophecies left and right. It's just a chaotic place to be. Whenever they come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, some people go go away getting full. Other people are going away hungry. Yeah. Uh, they're not doing it together. It's just sort of a free-for-all inside these churches. And so the, the overarching theme of this passage is, is order. Mm-hmm. But Paul does interestingly say, as in all the congregations yeah. of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. So it's not just a church in Ephesus thing or a church in Corinth thing, but it seems to be that it's this is the, the sort of expectation in all the churches. Uh, and also I think along with this is that for me, this sort of statement is sort of a, it's so, sort of like the tip of the iceberg. It shows that there is something mm. really deep in Paul's thinking that he's just giving simple expression to here. And so we don't like what we see here, but because that's often because we don't understand the the mm. giant iceberg of thought that is going on uh, that we don't see in in Paul's thinking here. Paul's not giving a full-on exposition of his view of 
how men and women are to relate. What we're seeing here is something poking through the surface of his views of men and women. And so I think in Paul's mind, his view of men and women has got to be so shaped by the Old Testament as well, by the the, the biblical framework of of creation and how God has created men and women to work together Mm -hmm. uh, to complement one another. Now, I do think in this passage also that there could be something up to the idea that because in this culture, women are, were not as educated as men and we wouldn't say that that's a good thing, but that may have just been how it is that they were perhaps asking all sorts of questions to their husbands throughout Mm. the service, Mm. confused by things, (laughs) and that may have been just a general disruption to the service. And so part of what Paul might be saying here is that uh, if they have these sorts of questions that pop up throughout the service, maybe they should, they would be best if they just waited till they got home to to ask for clarification. Uh, That could be something that's going on here as well. Well, and that word submission, I think, requires some explanation. Um, Again, to reference uh, Jesus and John Wayne or a lot of other material that's been produced over the last, say, 15 years by advocates of egalitarianism, um, they have justifiably noted that submission has been used to keep people down. Mm-hmm. Like the, um, it is often used in that way in complementarian oh, yeah. context. It yeah. is frequently used to keep women down, to not trust women, to not believe them when they would say somebody made an advance towards me that it made me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, that you're just being emotional or something mm-hmm. like that. And, mm-hmm. and so um, this is not encouraging that kind of submission keep someone in submission um Hmm. i I was teaching about this topic with um our high school students a few weeks ago during sunday school because we were talking about our church and um, we talked about how at our church we hold to this complementarian view of men in the positions ordained positions of pastor elder and deacon and um i always try to remind people that in Ephesians 5, when the wife is called to submit to her husband, or really in the church context where all people, men and women, are called to submit to church leadership, mm-hmm. it's really more about an attitude than just the particular um, activities that, that that person would fulfill or do. Like we, we wouldn't expect somebody to come in and physically submit in some way to me as a pastoral authority or elders, but we would expect every person to come to worship with an attitude of trust hmm. in and my leadership as a pastor to trust that I'm going to present to them God's word, that mm-hmm. the worship service will be uh, biblical and so forth. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really the same thing with the whole complementarian issue where what is, what is being encouraged is an attitude of trust for church authorities. And um, again, that's men and women of church authorities. And in particular, in this case, or if we think of marriage, women are called to trust their, their husbands and their, their church authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that attitude of trust is the biblical, interp- yeah. the biblical definition of submission. And men should be trying to win their, their wives... Yeah. 
trust. be responsible it, yeah, and be trustworthy. <laughs> make it easy for her to, to trust you. Absolutely. And I think that's where um, things have often gone wrong. Like we recognize we're living in a sinful world where relationships between men and women are very tenuous, often very broken, very full of sin and, and tainted by selfishness and um, pride and ego and, and all of these things. And so um, that's kind of my interest in even having this conversation on the podcast is, and we're trying to work out how best to live together, men and women, yeah. in a church or in a family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I do think the complementarian view gives a really good, helpful, biblical, and even beautiful picture of how men and women can function in a family and in a church together. Hmm. Um, that men are called to be responsible and trustworthy, to give ourselves up for others as Christ gave himself up for the church. Women are called to be um, to have an attitude of trust hmm. and to to follow good leadership, um, not yeah. unquestioningly, uh, not that they just hmm. would uh, keep their mouth shut and not ever question some maybe some big thing or even a, a sinful thing that they see. That's not that's Correct. not what we're presenting. That's not what we're promoting. But that is what has often oh, yeah. what complementarianism has often become. Um, but really. We, we call men to be trustworthy and to be responsible, mm-hmm. and we call women to be trusting mm-hmm. and to, uh, to sort of come alongside uh, the men who are, who are carrying the heavy burden of leadership. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really think that I've often seen some of the strongest um, opponents of complementarianism to be men because... A lot of men don't want to be responsible, and they don't want to carry this heavy burden of leadership. And um, even even in you know conversations that I've had with people or, or family situations that I've seen, um, mom is the go getter. She's the one who kind of makes things happen. And a sermon that would call dad or the husband to put his big boy pants on and take some responsibility. And work harder, work for the promotion, uh, take care of his family more fully. He doesn't want to hear that sermon. He kind of mm-hmm. likes that. She just takes care of everything, mm-hmm. and he's a bit henpecked. And so, that's. Uh, I think yeah. uh, that is often some of the pushback that I've seen. Um, men who don't want to live with responsibility and who really aren't that trustworthy, they don't really want to hear complementarian theology because mm-hmm. it's going to call them into carrying a burden yeah i want to go back for just for a quick Mm. second to something you said that made me think about how one of the agreements we would have as complementarians with egalitarians is that we both want what's best for everyone right oh absolutely that's i think that's that's a starting point that we all have the the difference in in approach then is how how we arrive at that best and so we want women to be at their healthiest. We want them to be using their God-given gifts. Uh, we want them to be to be strong, to be mature, to be uh, to be hard workers. Uh, we, we don't we don't want women to to be uh, brought down, to be kept yeah. down. Yeah. We don't want to be like a boot to the neck and keeping women down. That would 
be the opposite of what of what we want. We want yeah, women to excel. We want women to yeah. be to be joyful and to be utilized and to to uh, have have passions and desires and things that they are that they are uh, working towards as mm-hmm. well. And so mm-hmm. the question is is well, how does this happen? How do men and women work together for the mutual benefit? Uh, for of both and so of that's, particularly the church and the home i would say yeah um in in those contexts in particular um like first timothy 3 verse 5 draws particular attention to the leadership of the the man in the church and in the family first timothy 3 yeah. 5 says if anyone does not know how to manage his family how can he take care of god's church hmm. and so there that comes right on the heels of the qualifications of an elder, and the explicit assumption, <laughs> I don't know, explicit assumption, that's, I don't know if that can be <laughs> a, a thing, but but the very clear assumption is that the man is managing the family, he's taking responsibility for it, he's caring for it, he's helping to provide for it, um, and also is going to be doing the same kinds of things in the church. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, that's a really good point. We want we want to to uh, to limit it to that um, to those two spheres of, of church and home. Yeah, it's, some complementarians wouldn't limit it to that, but right. um, it seems the most clear teaching in Scripture mm-hmm. does uh, does at least in our view yeah. promote that um, yeah. in the church and the home. Yeah, that's an interesting discussion. <laughs> that's a big I one. think uh, as we're, I want to jump into relevant passages that aren't just about women in ordained ministry, but give a sort of more holistic view of men and women's complementarian uh, design and creation by God. I think from here you could argue some people. I think those kinds of complementarians would argue that uh, it's not just for church and for home, but also for broader government and yeah, yeah they would say that they would sort of almost want to reduce those two positions of men they would do so i think using mainly the arguments from genesis that we could bring up so genesis 1 of course gets into the idea of male and female being created in the image of god so that's seen in genesis 1 27 and 28 genesis 2 adds an interesting point where uh, God says when he creates Adam, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so a helper, that's that. this that's is a big word. That could be a huge word in this discussion of uh, of women in the world, not just in church or home. Um, and then uh, and when God, when he, it also needs to be said, when he creates us in his image, his commission is to both of them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so together they are to, to fulfill that role, that sort of cultural mandate as it's often called. And then Genesis three, the curses are interesting here. This is after the fall. Mm. Now God gives curses to the serpent and then to the woman and then to the, to the man. And so to the woman, it says in, in verses 16 and 17, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Or your desire shall be for your husband, 
but he shall rule over you. The idea here is a sort of power imbalance. She will desire to, to rule over her husband, but he will rule over her. Uh, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which of, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And so the curse for the woman here, interestingly, is in her childbearing. And I think that this has something to do with First Timothy 2.15, where it says that she will be saved through her childbearing. There's some sort of connection here. And the uh, curse is with her relationship with her husband, The too. curse is on her relationship with her husband, whereas Adam's curse primarily falls with his work. So some people may see in this uh, that, that the man should be primarily engaged in, in work. Uh, uh, now, of course, as we'll see in a second, there's nuance to this. There's female workers in the New Testament. Sure. A lot of wealthy female business owners yeah. or seemingly they seem to us to be business owners ruth such was as, a virtuous woman yeah, yeah or lydia in act 16 the mm-hmm. seller of purple goods which meant that she was probably pretty well off yeah. different women really helped the apostolic mission take place they, they sort of funded it and yeah. backed it sure. they were you know maybe they were using uh what's the website called <laughs> pathion or whatever. Oh, patreon. Yeah, patreon patreon yeah <laughs> Uh, which we, we maybe we should use. No, I'm just kidding. We shouldn't. Um, but yeah, there's the Proverbs 31, the woman. Right, there's blessed. that. She goes out and purchases a field. and Yeah. yeah. And another thing I will say in terms of relevant passages, just Luke 6, Luke 6, 13 through 15, all the disciples that Jesus appoints are men. I think that that's very much on purpose. Um, and then also in the Old Testament, the very clear pattern of male leadership, both in the priesthood and in the, the line of kings is pretty clear. So there seems to be uh, something that goes back to the created order of men and women um, in terms of these sorts of things. And so I think there's a lot of sort of circumstantial evidence, we, sh- we could say. Uh, but then, yeah, let's look at these passages that add nuance and balance to, to all of this. Uh, where do we see women in leadership roles in the Old Testament, Mark? Yeah, well... Obviously, the first one that most people would cite would be the story of Deborah, the judge. Mm-hmm. And um, probably the second one would be Holda, the, the prophetess. Those two would probably be mm-hmm. um, the, the big stories of the Old Testament that point to women who do pastoral elder types of things in, mm-hmm. in the Old Testament. Along with that, you have a prophetess, Anna, in Luke right. 2. Yeah. who's particularly spoken of as a prophetess who stayed in the mm-hmm. temple and prophesied over baby Jesus when he was um, dedicated there. Um, and so there are, uh, yeah, in our heading here, is passages that add balance um, and yeah. require nuance. And we recognize that these texts are in the Bible. And I, this is sort of where I would say hmm. um that a biblical case could be made for egalitarianism. Um, yeah. that, well, that's a, these are often the sort of passages yeah. that are turned to. And um, that distinguishes it, for example, from the homosexual topic where hmm. there, there can be no biblical case for gay marriage. Um, there's, there's nothing in the Bible that would suggest... There's really not much nuance. Yeah, that, that there would Correct. be an opportunity for two men to be married to one another, and that would be good in the sight of God. Yeah. However, um, there are these examples of women who are in leadership roles, Deborah, Hulda. Mm-hmm. Um, although 
even even the work of a prophetess, I don't know if you could always say is purely a position of authority. Like th- there is yeah. that definition of prophecy in First Corinthians of that prophecy is a a a way of using the scriptures to encourage someone in their faith. Mm-hmm. And so. I, I do think there are women in our church who have the spiritual gift of prophecy hmm. because of how they are so good at using scripture to encourage me in my work as a pastor or their husbands or other people in the yeah. church. And so I would say the spirit of prophecy is at work in our church hmm. among men and women. And why can't that be a gift of, of women just as much as men? I think yeah. that the Bible makes it clear that there are women who prophesy. Yeah. Um, Acts, oh, very Acts 2, Joel 2. Yeah, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Sons um, and daughters. Women will prophesy, right? Yeah, and so it's not it's not a gendered thing at all. Yeah. Uh, women women can prophesy. Now we can give it that definition that you've given it of sort of sharing the word with, sharing God's word with someone in a moment of need or of God putting it on your heart. Yeah. Um, so whether or not that's sharing a passage with someone or giving a word from the Lord, however we define that, Women are very clearly in the New Testament yeah. and the Old Testament able to prophesy and to be prophetesses yeah. or prophets. Um, and so that would be our understanding as complementarians of Joel 2 and Acts 2 of the promise that the Spirit would be poured out on all people and men and women will prophesy. And it's also the reason that there would be prophetesses in the Old and New Testaments as well um, because mm-hmm. God pours his word forth through Men and women, and that's yeah, that's great, and we believe that. I think where a lot of complementarians go wrong is they um, they reject the prophecies of women. Yeah, if that makes you feel wrong, that 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 strikes you as a bad thing. Yeah, you're that's, not being biblical that's here. Not so. biblical, right? Uh, and I would say here here's an area where I would sort of diverge from some complementarians is that I I like when women would share testimonies in church. Hmm. You know, that they would stand at the pulpit even, that they would have yeah. a microphone. Um, I I do think that that is different than preaching, um, particularly mm-hmm. in the question of authority mm-hmm. seems to be the question in First Timothy 2 and 3. Mm-hmm. And so when somebody is prophesying, you might say, or sharing a testimony in church, uh, I don't know if they necessarily have authority. They're sharing mm-hmm. about what God has done in their life. Um, I think that's a very clear biblical mandate. I will proclaim in the assembly of the saints what the wonderful things the Lord has done. That's a command all throughout the Psalms. And so I think that that's done as we sing. That's done through testimony as Mm -hmm. well. If somebody comes forward and stands at a microphone, I don't think that's necessarily preaching. Yeah. Um, Now there are complementarian churches I know that would have a big problem with that happening during a worship service, but Hmm. I, I... I believe that that's right in line with the the spirit of prophecy that God mm-hmm. pours out on on his people. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really good point to add because this is a discussion that so many people have and they get really caught up in the sort of can women do this? Can yeah. women do that? Yeah. Uh I think it really does have fundamentalists to do. obsess about those can that yeah. the list, you know. Yeah. Can, basically it comes down to can a woman be on stage from the moment the service starts yeah. to the moment the service ends some some complementarians would say that women shouldn't be shouldn't be worship yeah worship leaders, leaders. they shouldn't yeah. even be like the like the the guitar player or something <laughs> um, or the drummer or or the 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 backup singer uh and so 
that I think is where you get into a lot of these really ticky tack arguments that <clears throat> aren't aren't really helpful and it's easy to have for for armchair theologians who yeah. who want to just debate it but it's really not a useful conversation. I think another point that we could add here though is the high place of women in the gospels. Jesus mm-hmm. is just very clear respect and love for women. Mm-hmm. Uh, his appreciation of women, we could even say his elevation of women. Um and his his protection of them, his compassion on them, yeah. his appreciation of them. Uh, I was reading a book last night called Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin, and she has a chapter asking the question, does Christianity uh, sort of demoralize women or push women down? She's arguing that it does not, and so she has a good chapter explaining Jesus' love for, for women throughout the Gospels that we see. And even the, the trust that the uh, apostles had, or when they don't listen to the women, to Mary and Martha, as they come back proclaiming the resurrection, they all sort of dismiss it. And this is seen to be something that is to shame the men, that they didn't believe these two women just because they were women. And I think that that's an interesting point. The Bible, yeah. the b- biblical authors entrust the story to these women. Mm-hmm. They say the women were the first ones to go back and proclaim it. Now, a lot of people, I think, unfortunately, take this uh, passage or these passages in the Gospels and try to make a whole case that, well, they were the first ones to preach the Gospel, therefore they should be uh, pastors. Uh, And I don't think that that's a very clear case or even a very good case uh, because it's it's true that women should be preaching the Gospel. I would never want to say that someone shouldn't be, man or woman, if you're going to go on the streets and tell somebody about, about Christ... You don't have to be a man to do that sort yeah. of thing. And so yeah. in the same way that the female, that the women were the first ones to find that, that the Lord had been resurrected and to go and tell others about it, this, that doesn't mean that they they were the first ordained uh, pastors of churches or anything yeah. of that sort. Yeah, men and women are all called to share the gospel with the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for our salvation, that that's the gospel message. And um, that's often, mm-hmm. so N.T. Wright, when he talks about it, the, the, I've often heard him say mm-hmm. he roots a lot of his argument in the first gospel preachers were women. And, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. that's a very weak argument in this conversation. And you'd expect better from N.T. Wright. Really, really would. And, and that's, I've, I've heard that from Christian Reformed women pastors mm-hmm. um, in forums before. I've heard that from... Um, yeah, other pastors who are promote the egalitarian position that mm-hmm. um, given that the first people to know about the resurrection of Christ were women, therefore women should be um, ordained to the roles of pastor and elder mm-hmm. is a very weak link. And you I, know what's funny is that the Roman Catholics, there's nobody who adores Mary higher than the Roman Catholics, yeah. and yet they still would not say that she would have been ordained or could have been ordained. Yeah, and so, well, and the reason that it's... Um, that I think it's a very weak argument is uh, it's a lot like pedo communion and the homosexual argument again in this way where in the particular texts that deal with the issue that we're talking about hmm. there is a, a a consistent thread of the complementarian view so when Paul is a- answering the question who should be the leaders of this church who should be the, the minister the one who brings the word hmm. um when he's answering those questions, it's he gives complementarian answers, yeah. and and what the 
sort of the other side, you might say, in this case the egalitarian would do, is they would sort of minimize those texts that have the particular answers and go to other texts that don't particularly deal with the this mm-hmm. issue and mm-hmm. say, well, look here how these women come and share um, the message of Jesus' resurrection with the disciples, which is true, and so that calls all people, men and women, to share the message of resurrection, but doesn't particularly deal with the question of authority in proper or you know church leadership. So maybe maybe another thing that we could get to that I think is underneath the surface of the whole conversation here is the very prevalent understanding that leadership and positions of leadership that's the good place to be that's where you want to be that's the best spot in the church and so to say that men are called to be pastors and leaders is to keep women out of the best spots to be mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. that that's definitely the way that Americans think of leadership and you know that's not just Americans it's what Jesus says too about the Gentiles how they lord their authority over one another but um, that's really not the way that a complementarian Mm -hmm. I think should view church leadership as sort of this ascent to the top spot in the church where you're the pastor or you're the elders you're like the CEO CFO leader of the church you're in charge and if that's how your ecclesiology is designed, then it does seem sort of inconsistent yes. to not allow yes. a female to to take that position. And I think most people, that is their understanding of church, yeah. is you and I as pastors and the elders, they're the ones at the top. Yeah. And they're the ones in charge. They get the nice office suites yeah, with right. a good view. Right. And that's the worldly understanding of church leadership, yeah, whereas so. the Ephesians 5 um, way of doing ministry, way of doing marriage in that case, but really it's ministry mm-hmm. as well because it's about Christ and the church. Mm-hmm. It's the, the one taking the heaviest burden of responsibility. Yeah. So it's it's sort of servant number one, not yeah. not um, you know citizen number one. Like the president is kind of like the top citizen you might think of the United States, hmm. but um, but really the pastor and the elders are called to to lowliness, to humility. Hmm. Um, if we adopt a worldly understanding of leadership, I think that um, it, it will seem very problematic that only men are in those positions. But if yeah. we adopt a biblical understanding of service, um, yeah, it, it does involve um, leadership. Mm-hmm. And, and in some ways it can, the Venn diagram can kind of overlap with a worldly understanding of, you know, making plans and, uh, casting a vision, or however mm-hmm. you might want to say that, um, mm-hmm. presenting God's word. There is authority in that. Yeah. Um, but, but at the same time, seeing authority as necessarily and inherently better as yeah. one who follows is is going to be a big problem. And I, I re- try to reject that as much as possible as a complementarian pastor. Do you think that there's something to it as well that men and women are? symbolically different and and that's part of god's design and that they're they're symbolically called to different functions and and roles i know a lot of people don't like the language of roles as we've been saying it but Mm. uh the the pastoral role has nurturing components which we maybe would correlate with uh 
with feminine symbolism. Sure. Um, but then also the, the pastoral role is very much defending, protecting, um, and fighting off uh, false false teachers and throughout the New Testament, the, that I think is part of why the the, the role of of pastor is called pastor. Pastor yeah. has a word. Or the etymology of that word goes back to being a shepherd. Yeah, and shepherds don't just feed their flock and and cuddle their flock and host hoist them over their shoulders like the pictures that we see of Jesus in children's Bibles, but yeah, they are out, out fighting off uh, wolves and lions, uh, and so there is a sort of uh, strength that has to be had, yeah, and kind so, of a grittiness, you might say. Yeah, and it's yep. and this is uh, this is not to say that females can't be tough or gritty or anything like that. I I am married to a woman who is a very tough young young woman, um, and so I I don't dismiss that at all. But mm-hmm. there is there's something I think symbolically uh, to the role of being a pastor uh, that in that in God's creation and in his economy uh, has called men to specifically yeah i think that's a a good argument and i I agree with you i don't know if i've developed all my ideas perfectly on the matter and so um i think the argument you just made actually segues into what has convinced me in large part of the complementarian position and so maybe we can get to that real quick as we close um and and one of the big arguments that I've heard that was convincing to me. So maybe it's just a snippet of my history that I was raised in a de facto complementarian church that mm-hmm. never really taught um, theology that could be called, uh, you know, male headship or, or things like that, complementarianism. And right. then um, went to college, went to seminary. Um, I was a, attended a church after college that had women elders um, and then went to seminary and was, was a little bit open to the idea. And by the end of seminary, I candidated at a church that had women elders and I candidated at two churches that did not. So mm-hmm. I was, I was open to taking a call maybe, maybe out of, uh, expediency. Um, but, uh, was open to taking a call to a church that was egalitarian. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was really during my first call which was to a complementarian church that I, I researched the issue more and was became more solid in my my views. And one of the things that convinced me was a talk that I heard John Piper give where um, I think it was part of a sermon where he, he was talking about offering young men and young women a vision of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. Hmm. And he basically said, when we ask an egalitarian person, what does it mean to be a man, a Christian man? And what does it mean to be a Christian woman? And the answers are the same for both. Hmm. We're, we're lacking something. We're, yeah. we're not equipping people as well as we could be from the Bible. And so he would say, we need to be telling boys what it means to grow up and be a Christian man. And the complementarian would say, that involves taking responsibility um, carrying a burden, mm-hmm. um, maybe not always being the leader. Like mm-hmm. it's not as though every young boy <laughs> is called to be a pastor or an elder oh, even. No. <laughs> um, but at the same time, um, if you if the Lord calls you to marry someday, to take responsibility and provide for your family as best as you're physically capable of doing. Yeah. Um, and for the girl who is 
wants to oh and piper also includes fighting in that hmm. so fighting evil um protecting mm-hmm. the family uh protecting people from bad theology from error mm-hmm. uh, and so you know he he draws attention to how little boys want to fight they mm-hmm. want to turn everything into a gun and a sword mm-hmm. and he said someday little boy you're going to grow up and you're going to put the pretend guns and swords away and you're going to fight satan and you're going to stand up for your family and you're going to protect them hmm. and um, you're going to pay a sp- special attention to doing that yeah. um, and so for for girls um, th- again this isn't every girl mm-hmm. um, but that nurturing um, care that girls typically give to um, you know babies and things around them um, that, that could seem like a stereotype but but is a call on the Lord to grow up for that, for that girls would grow up and be helpers, that they would be to, in some ways caretakers, mm-hmm. um, maybe of their husbands or of their family. Um, and and, this is not an inferior no, thing. God, yeah, it's a glorious calling. God is in, in some way is a caretaker of us, yeah. right? He yeah. nurtures us. He feeds and provides us. He the the word of God is even called the milk of the word as God is, is nurturing us in that sort of intimate way. He wants us to go off of the, 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 the milk in some sense too, and to have the real meat. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but there, there there are those senses too. And so to say these sorts of things, I I don't think is, is inherently sexist sort of stuff. Yeah. I don't think it's necessarily stereotypical either, but, um, it's, it's, attempting to cast a vision for boys and girls to grow up and be Christian men and Christian women, which um, all men and women are called to follow the Ten Commandments, to a beatitudinal life, to Mm -hmm. um, the fruit of the Spirit. I just preached about this, how gentleness, Mm -hmm. or you preached about that, or goodness um, are are often presented more as feminine fruits of the Spirit. And yep. Um, yep. and maybe the faithfulness and some of the other ones <laughs> are are more masculine. <laughs> yeah. No, like we reject that. All men and women yeah. overlap almost entirely in yeah. our kingdom calls. Yeah. Um, however, the complementarian view does acknowledge that there's a biblical prescription to some extent mm-hmm. for what it means to grow up and be a biblical man or a biblical woman. Mm-hmm. And the egalitarian position often will just revert to, mm-hmm. oh, to grow up and be a man or woman means to be compassionate or courageous or faithful. To be like Jesus. Yeah. So there's well, an androgynousness. That's starting to ignore certain things about the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's what convinced me most is that I want to give my sons and my daughter some direction it, that isn't too specific that says my daughter has to choose between being a teacher or a nurse mm-hmm. um, and my sons have to choose between being baseball players or engineers. Mm-hmm. Like th- that's not what we're getting at here. But we are saying, sons, this is what I tell my boys, you're going to grow up and you're going to be responsible. You're going to take care of things. You're going to be a problem solver. Mm-hmm. You're going to go into people's lives and, and be a helper um, yeah. and, in a way of serving. Mm-hmm. And taking responsibility wherever you go. Hmm. My, for my daughter, that is going to look different, I believe, than it is for my three sons. Yeah. And, th- and that's sort of the baseline complementarian position is that there there is a difference. Some, somewhere, yeah. Yeah. some way, right. there's a difference between 
men and women and that is not to be ignored so that that's how you came to your position through that that john piper sermon sounds like an interesting sermon uh for me it was first timothy 2 uh, 13 and 14 paul rooting it in creation mm. for me that seemed absolutely clear and pretty much uh impossible to be argued with and so for me it really is a submitting to authority thing also though what adds to my confidence is that a sort of complementarianism has been held ever since the beginning uh, of the christian church Mm. it really hasn't been until the 20th century uh, maybe the 19th century you can see some sort of uh, women who are doing their own thing uh, Seventh Day Adventist. What I can't remember her name. Uh, so there Ellen, is a little oh, bit of that. Ellen G. White. Ellen yeah. G. White. Yeah. So there is a little bit of that in the 19th century, but really, it's not until the 20th century, and particularly to the sexual revolution, mm-hmm. that it comes in earnest. The whole discussion. Prior to that, uh, women were never priests. There are times in church history where women are deacons, which is something we could have discussed a little yeah, bit more. Sure. I think it is a bit more of a gray area. Um, but all throughout church history, all the historic churches, everything we you can read, women do not operate in the role of, of, uh, of priests or pastors. Um, they're, they do not have that sort of liturgical function. And so I think there's something to be said yeah. about that as well. And it requires a really significant... Uh, argument to be made to change that. So the burden of proof is on yeah. those who require, who desire the change. Um, yeah. Once again, just like the homosexual question, is there is this massive yeah. amount of church history, and we don't do theology today in a vacuum as if everything's up for debate, <laughs> and we'll just go into the Bible and wonder what, what we'll find. Yeah. No, there is this rule of faith that that has existed since the time of Christ, and maybe things will change, and an, a change will be brought because the burden of proof is sustained by those who are bringing the change. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There is some argument to be made from Scripture for egalitarianism. Mm-hmm. So, again, that's where you and I would probably differ from many Christian Reformed people even who would say yeah. there is no argument to be made. Definitely the URC... Uh, many in the PCA, um, OPC. Yeah, we, we see what they're saying. We see their arguments. Yeah. Some, some in those more conservative Reformed denominations would say there is no argument to be made from Scripture, and so yeah. any egalitarian is uh, must have a in, insufficient view of the authority of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I actually don't believe that. I would yeah. say there is some argument to be made. It's a far weaker argument, though, than... Yeah. The complementarian argument. Yeah, even all the nuanced passages that we brought up, yeah, um, don't make me feel uncomfortable with my position in the least. Yeah, they they certainly add nuance and balance and keep me from from turning a, it into a gospel issue. For example. yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. making it an issue of salvation or something, and it's it's not. But it, I I I don't foresee myself being convinced of the of the other side. Um, I've, I've read other books. There's this sort of trajectory hermeneutic view that, mm-hmm. uh, over the course of salvation or redemption history, uh, there's sort of an opening up that you, we see sort of happening. And now that by our time, we should be more lenient towards women in ordination. There's a book called slaves, women and homosexuals. Yeah. Uh, 
And so that's a book that a lot of people have turned to in order to defend egalitarianism. I'm not convinced by that. Paul doesn't seem to root his his argument in any sort of trajectory. He roots it in the created order of men and women. And for me, that that is uh, yeah. pretty clear. And well, and and slaves, women, and homosexuals is a great example of of three topics that people often look to as similar. Mm-hmm. And and I, I do think it's a great contrast to make among the three. Sure, yeah, because. The, the slavery issue, those abolitionists bringing a new, well, maybe not a new view, but a strong view that is contrary to the status quo, mm-hmm. sustained the burden of proof with Scripture, mm-hmm. with the Exodus, with mm-hmm. Ezra and Nehemiah, with Philemon, with yeah. um, Timothy's, uh, or Paul's words to Timothy where he says, slave traders mm-hmm. are among adulterers and mm-hmm. and liars and people who are greedy like and so they sustain the the burden of proof with scripture yeah. to say slavery is is not a good thing mm-hmm. it's not a good thing yeah and uh and so therefore it would be best if christians become abolitionists so yeah. they, they sustain that burden of proof whereas i don't think it's been sustained um nearly as much for egalitarians and i don't think it is sustainable at all for those who are in the open and affirming camp with homosexuality mm-hmm. so that it's the burden of proof question i yeah. guess and yeah. um it doesn't seem to do that maybe another little argument that i've heard uh was from don carson where he just encourages people to read the the text it, it, he basically makes an appeal to the perspicuity of scripture hmm. and say what does the text say on its own terms what is it plainly saying yeah. And to me, it's it's plainly saying that the com- complementarian view is one that we should hold. Like if you just pick up the Bible in your language, um, trusting that the translation is legitimate, what is First Timothy saying? What is First mm-hmm. Corinthians saying? And um, we may not like it. You don't have right, to like it. Right. But you should, from a place of Christian humility, submit to God's word and understand the broader perspective of, about how this is good. Yeah. That's the hard work. Yeah. That's the hard part for, for people who are on the fence, don't know quite what to think. Yeah, in our world, we're not set up to <laughs> like those sorts of passages. But what do we have to do? Well, we have to listen to Scripture, and we have to come to, to see how this is actually not just a true thing, but a good thing. Yeah. Uh, well, because so many people have seen it as a destructive oh, yeah. thing. Yeah. And so they, their experience has been that it is toxic, it's terrible. They read Jesus and John Wayne or some other book, maybe one by Rachel Held Evans or... Um, yeah, Sarah some, Bessie. Yeah, some other authors like yeah. that. And they say, yeah. wow, this complementarian male headship thing is toxic patriarchy, it's terrible. Yeah. And that's has been their experience of it. And they're not wrong often. <laughs> yeah, and and so our job as complementarians, I think, is to, to show that it's beautiful, that we really are, you and I, Zach, giving yeah. up ourselves for our wives as Christ did for the church and serving and not lording it over people as the Gentiles do and, yeah. and so forth. Like, um, yeah. And where this is really happening, it is really beautiful. And women are confident. Hmm. Um, you know, like to talk a little bit maybe about my history too, as my, my wife is, has three sisters, hmm. is from a very... Uh, 
I would say patriarchal family. They love their dad and their mother lives a, a life of submissiveness to their father and trusts him and follows him, his leadership. And he had four daughters who are very self-actualized, very accomplished, very confident uh, followers in the Lord. They have high degrees in education. They love their children. They have healthy lives. And so that that's one little place where I've seen um, complementarianism, even if it's not if it's not always called that, right. at practice in practice, and it's been a very beautiful thing. It's mm-hmm. turned out to <laughs> four women who love their husbands and trust them, and mm-hmm. and um, understand a lot about their role. Yeah. I would say, yeah. Um, so that's one little place, and hopefully, your churches, if they are complementarian churches are places where men are taking responsibility and they're not just leaders because they're men right yeah. that that's one thing that we certainly have to be on guard for and aware of um that that is sometimes the case in complementarian yeah contexts yeah so. and where women feel encouraged yeah and, absolutely and uh in, not just encouraged but encouraged to serve in the in the capacities that the lord calls them to um and trained to do so, equipped to yeah. do so, use their gifts. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope that those sorts of things happen, and we see we see strong, mature women uh, growing in these kinds of churches. Yeah, we don't want to produce dainty little damsels in distress. You know, right. we want we want mature, godly women who uh, love their husbands, submit to their husbands. Sure, yeah, maybe even rebuke their husbands. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh yeah, and Lord knows we need it. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and who raise their their children to to know the Lord, to engage well with the world, to be to be deep thinkers, and to be to be prayers. That's those are the kind of women we need, and we need those kind of men that you mentioned too that take responsibility, that shoulder burdens, that suffer for other people, yeah. uh, that that protect their families and their church. Uh, and so on. We we need those sorts of things, and we think that this is the way towards the flourishing that we're yep. talking about, towards the goodness, where both men and women will be uh, will be healthiest, because this is how God has designed us mm-hmm. to to live. Yeah, absolutely. So, hey, uh, chime in, folks, uh, on maybe Facebook, or you can even contact us directly if you don't want your comments to be made public but uh yeah. it's it's a tricky one and we've had a longer episode here because it's yeah. requires a lot of discussion so thanks yeah, for sticking with us through the conversation we've got a lot of notes here that we didn't even get to but um uh, hopefully what we have said is is helpful and even encouraging to you as a listener so yeah. thanks for listening to reform podmatics and uh, god bless you in the rest of your week yep grace and peace you guys